Welcome to the Firm Ethics Podcast. Join host Evan Rudavsky as he discusses topics that focus on helping entrepreneurs learn and understand how to build social mission into their for-profit business. Profit and purpose cannot only coexist, but also businesses with a social mission can actually be even more successful. Evan calls it business with a conscience. Hi, everyone. In this episode of Firm Ethics, I talk with Anat Sperling. Anat is co-founder of Toya, a multi-platform content creator partnering with some of the biggest IPs in the world to develop digital games and media for girls and women in a non-stereotypical way. Anat believes that freedom is also about how you are being portrayed, who tells your story, and what role models you have to identify with. Previously, Anat was the founder of the International Women's Film Festival in Israel, and she's been a longtime activist for women's rights as human rights. Join me as I talk with Anat Sperling in this episode of Firm Ethics. I'm Anat Sperling, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Toya. Great. Well, it's good to talk to you, Anat, and looking forward to learning more about Toya. So maybe we can start by having you tell us more about Toya and what it does and who it's for. So Toya is a multi-platform content creator. And what we do is partner with the biggest IPs in the world and develop digital games and media for girls and women in a non-stereotypical way. Right. So tell me more about what you mean by that when you say a non-stereotypical way. What is it that you're doing that you feel needs to be done differently from the stereotype? So remember walking into a toy store and then, you know, our boys would go for the Legos and war games while the girls would take the turn to the pink Barbie shelves. So same thing happens when our kids open a digital store on their mobile. And while boys are being offered a variety of gaming experiences and role models, girls are still being offered stereotypical, traditional, gendered content. And I think, and I know, that this is something we should be aware of, is this is a huge industry of 2.4 billion gamers worldwide, of which female comprise 44%. Those are big numbers. And I just read that there's a recent research from, I think the name of the university is Surrey in the UK, and shows that girls who play video games and identify as gamers are three times more likely to choose physical science, technology, engineering, math, compared to their non-gaming classmates. Now, what games are girls being offered? So it's mostly dress-up, haircut, makeup. And in order to change that and to enable them to practice decision-making strategy, practice adult roles, we need to change and add more female protagonists and our voice, which is lacking nowadays in the gaming industry. So for us, it's not just about, you know, going and developing an app. It's more of partnering with the big games out there, and there are a lot of them, and then take the very popular gameplay, which is the reason why kids play this game to begin with, and do some storytelling and expose them to the life stories and achievements of pioneering women. Very strong female role models that they can right. identify with. 
Okay, so let's unpack some of that because there's a bunch of interesting things that you mentioned there. So, you know, first of all, you talked about the fact that about 44% of the 2.4 billion gamers in the world are women, yes. girls and women. So we're talking about, you know, 1.1 billion girls and women who are playing games, but probably 44% of the games are not female-oriented in the sense that they're not providing strong female characters or role models or or they're not providing things beyond the stereotypical assumptions about what girls and women are interested in doing. And that's one of the things that you're trying to address to, to make the gaming content more relevant and more, more suitable for the whole variety of interests that girls and women might have, and not just the default interests that people seem to think they would have. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yes, totally. But it's also not about, you know, making some educational games. It's not about that because we consider ourselves an entertainment company. So if we were, for example, one of the first games we released, which is called My Gorilla Adventure, okay? Mm -hmm. And this game was inspired by the work and achievements of Diane Fossey, a legendary ape researcher. And so for us, it's not telling her autobiographical story. I don't think that's relevant for young kids, girls and boys. What I think is relevant and would be highly engaging is to extract the essence of her passion that enable her to achieve this incredible research of the mountain gorilla. And then translating that into a Minecraft gameplay mm-hmm. that will enable kids and girls first and foremost to experience through the Minecraft gameplay what it means to be an ape researcher. And by doing so, they will meet a lot of challenges. But I'll also see Diane Fossey and other characters, female characters, protagonists that we have invented. So they'll walk you through that. You will not be alone. They'll make you laugh. They'll be a companion. But by the time you'll complete the game, you would think, wow, it is so awesome to be an ape researcher. I can be one if I want to. And it becomes a non-issue for you. This is what we are after. Cool. And that's interesting. So you mentioned that you're not necessarily building games that are meant to be standalone, that you're, you're trying to kind of build and market in a vacuum, but you're actually trying to take advantage of the existing, you know, big platforms that are out there like Minecraft. So what you're trying to do is build things that work in the platforms where, you know, girls and women are already playing and engaging and create alternative storylines and alternative activities for them to take part in rather than just trying to build something small and separate and try to attract attention. So plugging into the mainstream platforms that are out there essentially and providing new narratives for girls and women is part of what you're trying to do. Totally. I think that many factors are leading to the increased success of user-generated games and platforms for those games. And there are the top few games on most platforms that tend to capture a huge portion of the total game revenues and users. And therefore, it became expensive to acquire consumers for new games. And the UGCs, the user-generated platforms, content platforms, are expanding. And we believe they're offering a unique opportunity for exposure and fast growth with low-cost development. 
And I think Minecraft is an excellent example of such a platform. And Toya is an early mover in this emerging category. Can you explain a little bit more about that for people who probably like me a bit, who don't fully understand how these um, platforms work and how you can take advantage of the open nature of some of these platforms? Because Toya is still a small company, right? It's still early in its um, development. So obviously the resources to build something of your own in terms of building a platform would be pretty intensive and hard to come by. But if you can plug into an open existing platform that enables you to get a much bigger audience much faster. So, you know, how does that work for you? And uh, how do you take advantage of that to grow bigger, faster? So you're absolutely right, Evan. And I think that if we were to try and develop our own app and do some, you know, push some traffic and get some brand awareness, it would have taken us a long time and would cost a lot of money. Whereas partnering with the existing biggest games out there and doing our content, implementing our own content made much more sense. So just to explain more about Toya, I would say that, you know, in 2017, we are still are, but we were an early stage company raising seed round. And then while we were raising seed round, we met with Microsoft and we shared our thoughts with them and knowing they own Minecraft. And Minecraft has a huge user base of 144 million kids playing it worldwide. And it grows by 10% yearly. So Microsoft launched the Minecraft Marketplace, which is like a Minecraft store. See it as a Minecraft app store, okay? Mm -hmm. Easier to perceive it that way. And they handpicked a few partners from all around the world that will be able to use Minecraft and create their own games or skin packs or texture packs and then sell it on Microsoft Store on the Minecraft Marketplace and share the revenues. So Toya was one of the partners chosen. That's a huge achievement, actually. I imagine that they didn't pick thousands of partners, but probably only a, 20. a group, 20 partners. So that's actually yes. a pretty big achievement to be one of the 20 companies that Microsoft invited to be part of this platform. Why do you think they, they chose Toya? What was it about you that appealed to Microsoft and made them feel that you should be one of those 20? I think that everyone knows probably Wonder Woman, the film, right? Mm -hmm. So I think this film had a huge impact on the need and the fact that girls are an underserved demographic. Microsoft know that. They want more girls to play their game. And they knew that what we would offer is a new interpretation for a very popular gameplay already existed. And thinking about the need, and I think it was also in part with their values, because they're also, you know, always talking about how they want to promote girls and empower them, etc. And they have all kinds of programs doing that. So we were pretty unique, also in the sense that we, you know, signed a license agreement with Microsoft in August and then hired people, went and recruited people, started our team, the studio, everything happened very, very quickly. So signed the license agreement in August and by the end of October, we had our first product out there on the store. And we've been releasing a product per month since then, having more than 13 products out there, both games and virtual items, but we were actually the only 
partner that didn't came with a huge community of Minecraft gamers. We just started, just like the marketplace started alongside us. So that was a very unique opportunity, I would say, where we needed to demonstrate our ability. You know, it was... <laughs> money time <laughs> yeah exactly. and, you know having an idea and then creating a product sometimes can be very two very different things right and that's kind of interesting because you were not a gamer yourself or not not a games producer at least before you started toya you had a background in film but also with a focus on on women and maybe it'd be interesting to understand a bit more about your background and what led you to the point where you felt that you know, gaming was a platform that could help you accomplish some of your social objectives, essentially. So I think that, you know, for me, women's rights were never a women's problem, but everyone's problem. And we need to go out there and see what threatens girls and then women as grown-ups and address that. And Essentially, it all comes down to the point of what is freedom? And that's the question, you know, I'm <laughs> always interested to explore and understand and learn more about. Um, and I started as a film uh, documentarist. I have a BFA in film and television from Tel Aviv University. And I have a master's in gender studies from Bar Ilan University in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 2004, I established the Association for the Advancement of Women Filmmakers in Israel. And our flagship project was the International Women's Film Festival, which I have founded and directed over a decade. We were showing hundreds of films made by and about women was also the chairwoman of the film committee at the Ministry of Education, a committee that chooses what films kids would watch from kindergarten till high school all across the country. Mm-hmm. And it was very successful. The festival was extremely successful. And after doing that over a decade, we actually changed the representation of women filmmakers in my country from 3% to almost 30 nowadays with budgets accordingly. Understanding that, I thought that if we want to change social patterns, we have to go back to childhood. And it's not that we're not working and, you know, showing films to uh, kids all across the country, but it was not in scale. And I was after scale. I wanted to reach critical mass because if you're talking about the gender gap and gender equality, so we have to continuously map the best practices to achieve maximum exposure in minimum time. We don't have the time or the luxury to sit and wait. I've just read that, you know, according to the World Economic Forum's Global Gender Gap Report, if I remember correctly, at the current rate of change and given the continued widening of the economic gender gap already observed last year, the gender gap will not be closed for another 217 years. Yeah, so we don't have the time and we must act fast and reach a critical mass. 
So for me, after doing that, you know, more than a decade and specializing in film and gender, I thought that, you know, film was no longer the practice when it comes to kids, but digital games are. Everyone are playing games. So why not go for the biggest games out there and try to implement a new content with female protagonists and our voice? Mm-hmm. So this is how Toya came about. This is why I chose to stop mm-hmm. doing what I've been doing over the last 15 years and change the course, my course, to the second chapter of my life, I would say. Right. Interesting. So you started out basically as a woman in film and you recognized that women were not being well represented in film and you set about to change that and you had good success doing that. And so then having done that, you said, okay, how else can I continue to further the cause of women and what medium is most effective to do that? And you recognize that gaming is the medium that would both um, reach women when they're younger and still forming their attitudes and also reach the biggest audience fastest. Totally. And, you know, watching my kids, I have a boy and a girl, a girl Mm -hmm. who's 15 years old and a boy who's 12 years old, and they both play digital games. And watching them play before starting Toya, and also, you know, sitting with them and watching all this, you know, the web series, YouTube, gamers, whatever it is they were watching, I thought we could definitely bring in some new narratives because the gaming industry has been dominated by men for a very long time. And I think this is one of the reasons why our voice is still lacking. And we have to change that. We need our perspective as well. It is critical. We have that. Yeah, so let's talk about how you're doing that in in some of the gaming content. You started to talk about that earlier. You mentioned Diane Fossey as one example. So as I understand it, what you're trying to do is use some existing role models to kind of drive the game content and then around that um, create scenarios and experiences where girls can follow those role models and have adventures of their own that kind of establish what they can do and what they might be capable of if they if they chose that path or a similar path. So Diane Fossey is one example, and I think there are some others as well. So am I getting that right? And who are the other examples? So yes, there are a few. Well, our games are led by female protagonists. And some you probably recognize, like Diane Fossey. We also had a game called My Snowy Journey that is inspired by Junko Tabe, the first woman to reach the peak of Mount Everest and to complete the seven summits. She passed away two years ago. She was a Japanese mountaineer. She was actually a teacher, and she wanted to climb the mountain, but no men wanted her on board on any of their Mm -hmm. delegations. So she started her own thing and reached the top. So using Minecraft to tell her story was actually about letting you experiment in climbing the wall. Now, this may sound silly because this is all virtual, right? You're not actually climbing it. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you, once you reach the walls and you have three different walls on the way up and when, as you climb the mountain, you need to use some arrows in order to get going climbing. And it's difficult. And while you do that, 
you would say, and I saw many girls playing that as well as boys. It's challenging. It makes you think what you should be doing next and how. How you should gather the gear, what should be the next move. You need to manage your way up. And you need to think about it while you do that. And Minecraft lets you do that. This is why we chose to start with Minecraft as the first platform, not just because it is so big. So this right. is one example. There are a few. We just released a game series in collaboration with Dr. Jen Welter. So mm -hmm. she is the first woman to coach the NFL. And working with Jen was amazing because we showed her what we do on Minecraft. We talked about what she's doing when she's teaching and coaching. So working with Jen actually enabled us to do three different games based on football where you would do some kind of a football simulator in a way that will make you familiarize with the game as well as a very challenging parkour in some way, things that will challenge you. You will also see and talk to Jen while you play. She'll accompany you and she'll help you. This was very inspiring for us working with Jen. And the way that we develop our games is we think of the concept and then we discuss among ourselves the different ideas everyone has on what should be the next game. Once we decide, we go and do a research. We read and we watch the films done about the woman and then we start doing the game. Once we do that, we invite a steering committee that is comprised of teenagers, girls and boys, to sit with us in the studio. We share with them our thoughts and ideas. Now, they've been playing Minecraft since they were like 10 years old. Now they're like mm -hmm. 17, 18 years old. So we share our thoughts and get their feedback. So sometimes they would say, oh, I wouldn't go and do that. I would actually do that on Minecraft. If you want to tell that specific thing, you should do that and not that. So they have a very interesting feedback on the gameplay itself. And then we start developing. And our team is, their headquarters is in Tel Aviv. We also have a development team in Kiev. We are a female-led studio. And mm -hmm. it took us a while, actually, to find female developers. It's not an easy task, actually. Yes. And How did you find them? What was the process? It took us a while. Networking would be the answer. Talk to everyone we actually knew, shared some job descriptions, and met with a lot of people, asking them if they knew someone, and started interviewing. And eventually, <laughs> we got to them. And they've joined us, but it was a long process in yeah. which you need to be very persistent if you want to find those women because, I mean, you don't have a lot of them. Yeah, and that's you know, one of the things about building a for-profit business that's meant to have a social impact is that you can't necessarily take the easy way out. If you wanted to, you could build a, a games production company that was maximizing you know, audience and maximizing um, profitability, and you could hire the, the best available developers regardless of gender, which would probably make most of them male, not because they're necessarily better, but because there are a lot more of them around and easier to find. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, and you can maybe build a bigger business faster, but that's not what it's about, really. It's about living your values and about doing things in a way that, that's consistent with your mission. Um, but that does make it harder. I don't know if it makes it harder because I never tried the other way, so mm-hmm. I wouldn't know. But it is hard to make, you know, it's hard to make your impact. Nevertheless, it's very fulfilling and it's a super interesting journey uh, that I would highly recommend. But anyway, I don't think there is a choice. I never thought there was one. I personally cannot accept the fact that once my, my son and daughter are grown-ups, they would not consider themselves equals in the opportunities they would have. They would not perceive or experience the variety of opportunities out there as they will go and choose what next should they be doing, meaning what should their profession be, what can they or they cannot do. And I think we have to change that. Also, you know, talking about the paying gap and the lack of women in the STEM professions, there's a lot we need to change. It never made sense to me that men and women should be different when it comes to the workplace or other things. Just like, you know, when you look back and you remember that women were not allowed to wear pants, you know, you you can just wonder why, how come? So looking backwards nowadays, it doesn't make sense, right? Mm -hmm. It's astonishing to remember that we're not allowed to wear pants. So I do believe that looking forward, like in 20, 30, 50 years from today, this would be a non-issue. And we have to get there. And I think that the gaming industry is a great solution on our way there, closing the gender gap. This is why I feel there is no other way but doing that. Right. And you have to do it in a way that is, um, is consistent with that from the beginning. You can't take shortcuts if you want to do it in a way that's credible and maintains the values that you're trying to promote to others. Yes, totally. I guess that also means um, keeping your independence enough so that you can make those choices and, and do things in the way that you feel is most appropriate. And you know, that's where young companies sometimes get challenged because they have to raise money, they have to satisfy shareholders. Sometimes there's an attitude that shareholders need to get a return on investment quickly, and it, it makes it harder to build in you know, positive social impacts and you know, KPIs that are different from simply focus on profitability. But at the same time, we've seen you know, some of the damage that that can cause when we look at some of the big social networks and other big digital platforms and how they've um, you know, sometimes focused on profitability at the expense of you know, some of the other impacts on society. So, but it's tricky for a young company to try to get that balance right when you're trying to grow and, and pay salaries and, and do all of those things. So you know, how have you managed to keep your independence and the flexibility to essentially live your values with all of those other pressures and considerations that you might have? So I was a part of an Israeli female founder's delegation to Silicon Valley like two years ago almost, I think. A year and a half ago, and and there I met with Adita Taco, who is the founder of House. I think she's the only Israeli female unicorn so far. 
And sitting and talking, listening to her, she said, listen, a lot of people will tell you many different things, but what I would highly recommend is partnering with investors and shareholders that would be company friendly and founders friendly. And I would do anything within my power to keep that. So listening to her, came back to Israel and we're raising money, meeting with all kinds of private investors because it was in the seed round we raised from friends, family, but also from private investors, from angels in Israel. And I've met with, you know, a lot of people and they have also chosen us, you know, they chosen Toya, both, mm-hmm. not just me, also my partner, Ifat and Zalevich. But the thing is that we have a majority of women who has invested in Toya. And they're not just investors in the sense that, you know, they helped us and gave us their capital and, and supported us in that sense. But I'm talking to each and every one of them. There are six of them. On different issues, when I encounter different issues and I'm having problems, I'm calling them. I'm sharing it with them. And they give me very good advices. So they're highly involved in what we're doing. It's like, you know, someone, some of them has been an investor in startups for a long time. Some just started, but know a lot about impact so very a variety of uh, investors and each and every one of them share their experience and their, their knowledge with us yeah so as you were saying it's really it's about making sure that the investors who come on board are are aligned with the mission so so because of personal yes. experience that they've had that those personal experiences have caused them to believe in the mission or maybe it's experience that they have that can help you to achieve your mission and and achieve your goals more quickly by relying on some of their experience to help with that. But it is about, um, just like for any business, really, it's about picking the right investors, getting them on board and making sure that they're aligned, not just with the single goal of return on investment, but about with the mission of the company overall. Yes, and I'm thinking and hoping that in today's world, this is where we're going. And I know that we're not the only one has a double bottom line. You know, nowadays, there's a lot of companies. I have a lot of colleagues who founded wonderful startups aiming at changing some things that are not working in our world, in our society. And they would know it is for profit, but it is also for a good cause. Yep. That's why I'm doing this podcast, because I think we all need a bit more of that in the world. And, and I have a belief, and obviously you feel similarly, that businesses can actually have that kind of positive social impact. They can actually make a difference. And if they organize themselves that way, they can really be an important force in moving society in the right direction rather than relying only on political leaders or, you know, other people to make decisions that, that move us forward. It's actually entrepreneurs who can help make that happen by trying to solve problems that they see. I think that we cannot depend on a government solely or, you know, politicians or anything of that sort. We, I mean, startups and founders are a movement. It's a force. We have power. Why not use it to 
do good, to change uh, social practices, to help change the environmental state, to talk and, and do things that are connected to recycle. So there's a lot, many things, a lot of problems we need to address. And we cannot just think about the for-profit, but we should also not avoid thinking about the for-profit. And I'm saying that because I've been working for more than a decade in a nonprofit organization, and I think that the for-profit makes the goal much clearer as you move forward. Well, I know where you're going with that. I agree with you. And, you know, that's also an important part of you know, my thinking around firm ethics. It's, I think we can really admire and appreciate the people who work in charities or who work in you know, social enterprises where they are trying to do similar things, which is solve problems and, you know, alleviate poverty and difficult conditions for people, solve other problems that we face. But I'm a believer that the, the for-profit element actually makes a difference because it makes it sustainable. So if a company can actually solve a problem, improve things like you're trying to do for girls and women and the outcomes that they can enjoy in the future, having a profit element to make it sustainable and to fund its growth actually helps to achieve those goals even more effectively. And if you tried to do this as a charity or as a social enterprise, it wouldn't really generate the same kind of outcome. And probably take much longer. Right. And you'd be spending your time filling out forms, requesting grants and, you know, measuring grant impact and doing all sorts of things that take away from the focus on building something, which is what you can do as an entrepreneur. Yes. And since I've been doing both, I feel that being a for-profit enables me to act fast, move quickly, pivot easily. Not that I, I don't need to, you know, report to the shareholders. We do, of course, and we do need to stick to the plan. But somehow I feel there's much more freedom within the for-profit as a startup aiming for good than in the non-profit, if it makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And, you know, let's talk about that for a moment, because you mentioned earlier the, you know, your double bottom line and, and just now the fact that you still do need to report to shareholders on, you know, the results and stick to the plan. But you know, what is your double bottom line? So other than you know, being profitable and continuing to grow and providing the right return to everyone who's invested in, in the effort, how else are you measuring those impacts and reporting on your success, particularly the, the social impacts that you're trying to achieve? So I think the first phase, Toya, is to have a very good product, one that will sell that girls and boys would want to come and play again and again and again. And after maintaining that, the first part of having an impact is on our end is how many units are being sold, how mm -hmm. many kids are playing our games. So after partnering with Microsoft a year ago, I can now say that we had more than 5 million views and more than 90,000 products were sold without any publicity at all. We didn't spend a dime on sales and marketing. This platform is so huge mm -hmm. that those numbers came organically. Now we need to expand. We're now developing a new game for a new platform that we're going to launch by the end of March. And we're targeting 100 million girls 
uh, that are on those platforms. And once we see that the engagement is growing and the numbers of girls who are playing our games is you know, expanding as well, we would start a study, a social study, that will enable us to learn more about the impact of each and every product that the girls were playing on the long run. You know, it's not a, a research that can be done through a year saying, okay, the job is completed. It's okay now. They can continue. It's the question of how playing Toya's game impacted them and what happened afterwards if you compare that to their friends who didn't play our games. So I remember hearing a lecture in a very big women's conference called Women Deliver and back then in Copenhagen. So mm. the uh, chief editor of Sesame Street gave a very interesting lecture about how they measured the impact of an episode they did for Egypt of Sesame Street because they heard that, you know, families were not sending their daughters to elementary school. And so they created a program, Sesame Street, of course, that was aired on 4.30 where all the family would sit in the living room and watch it together. Mm-hmm. And they created a young girl with a burqa and they did it for like a couple of months. And then they chose like tens of hundreds of families who were watching the series in Egypt and talked to them, you know, just gather a lot of information, which led them to understanding that they have changed through this program, the lives of probably more than a million girls in Egypt Mm -hmm. that were now being able to go back to school just because of that. So I think that some kind of a study, a long-term study would be necessary and would be taking place probably starting 2020 after we are very well established on the platforms. Right. And it seems like, you know, some of what you're trying to measure perhaps is, you know, desire to pursue, you know, STEM-oriented careers and, totally. and certain things like that. Totally. Yes. And again, this is a long-term research because if you start playing our games when you're eight and we interview you every year, so it would be very interesting to learn and see what happens when you reach, you know, when you become 18 or 17, and what are your interests? What will you be pursuing as a grown-up? And how that impacted you alongside other factors, you know, in your life. So this is something we're aiming at. Right. And, you know, it's still early, but I guess like, like almost any entrepreneur, really, it's about getting the balance right between having enough information to chart a course, but also following your gut and your instinct. And I think the best entrepreneurs just have a sense that their idea has merit and there's a reason why they should be pursuing it. And then they try to you know, validate that with data. And also then, as you just described, back it up with the results and you know, the metrics as the business starts to perform. But obviously, you know, your instinct was pretty clear from the start that um, games were young women and girls were underrepresented in terms of games content and participation in the games industry. And that needed to be changed. And that seems like a pretty sound assumption to, to base your business on. 
And there were also a lot of researchers that we read during the development process uh, talking about the differences between female and male in the gaming industry from gender perspective, focusing on the different motivations they have. There's a research that asks gamers, 250,000 gamers, if they would like to have female protagonists, both you know, women and men, and girls and boys. 75% said that they want female protagonists, that their, the lack of female protagonists is something they want to stop. They need that. So there's a lot of research being done, and it's about reading and implementing that into our products as well. But the basic assumption, you know, is the same as, as the one I had when I was doing films and the International Women's Film Festival. We need our voice. It's so basic. Why not have female protagonists in films? Why not, you know, see our perspective as well? Have that on screen. So now that you talk about it, it's almost like, you know, everyone understands, really. And Wonder Woman was a game changer. Everyone understands why it is needed. Well, they didn't before. Like 20 years ago, 10 years ago. And the Me Too movement is also shaping and changing everything, I think, and has a huge impact on that as well. And how do you think the Me Too movement is, is impacting this? Because um, it is something that's so current at the moment, that's so much in the forefront of people's thoughts and media coverage today. Um, how is that making a difference? You know, from my personal perspective, too early to say what would happen within even the next five years. It's premature. But personally speaking, I think that, you know, women feel that they have more power now, that they can step up and talk and share their stories without being afraid. It's legit. You can do that now. You do not need to feel ashamed. You can go out and say whatever it is that happened to you. And feeling that you can do that is something that is extremely important for you as a girl, as a teenager, as a woman. It's a new standpoint. And mm. this will lead, in my mind, to a shift, a major shift in our culture, in power positions, and will have a long-term effect on the gender gap in all its aspects. And one aspect that I'm referring to is, of course, in film, which we already see, and in the gaming industry, which is just starting, but you hear the voices. And those are voices that were never heard before. So it's changing. And it's a catalysator, I think, for change. Right. Interesting. And that maybe comes back to what you said at the beginning of the conversation, where you asked the question, what is freedom? And I don't know if there's a single answer to that question, but what's your thought about that? What is freedom? So for me, freedom is being able to do whatever I want to do, that is legit, of course, but in a way that I don't need to ask myself, can I do it or can't I do it because I'm a woman, a girl, a young adult. So it's always about that. Can I act freely? Do I need to stop and think of what would happen if I do this or, or that because I'm a woman? This is the essence of freedom, where you do not need to constantly think 
of the implementation that your moves or decision will have just because you're a man or a woman. I think there's a long way to go before we would reach that. But for me, this is the essence of freedom. Right. And we need businesses like um, Toya to help us move forward toward achieving that. And many others in my mind. I mean, as I said, I think there's a strong movement now, also because of me too, but not just because of that, that is still shaping. It's early to know what the implementation would be, but I think that Toya, as others, will be a game changer. Yes. That's great. So what can we expect now for Toya in the future and for you personally? What's next and how can people get involved and learn more? So first, I would be extremely happy to talk to anyone who wants to share or be involved in Toya. You can reach us through our website, which is toyaplay.com. Toyaplay.com. Yes. If your girls want to join our focus group, we would surely love to have them. We have a big focus group of girls and boys, 7 to 14 years old, playing our games worldwide. We let them experiment with the things we develop in the studio and get their feedback once they are playing that. Personally, I'm looking forward to our new game, a new, very new product going to be released this March. I'm very excited about it. It's a different product inspired by an amazing woman, really, with a, an amazing project. Personally, I want everyone to know about and learn more about it's a combination of a very inspiring role model and a project that is saving the oceans. So it's a tricky one and it's complicated and very challenging, but I think we're going to have a beautiful game out there uh, by March. And, and hopefully, you know, a lot, many more kids, girls and boys will join our community and play our games. That sounds great. And uh, yeah, that upcoming game sounds mysterious and intriguing. I'm looking forward to hearing more (laughs) about who it is and what it's all about. Now, I guess um, we'll keep on paying attention, toyaplay.com. And um, please keep us posted about how everything is going. Sure will. And thank you for having me. Well, thank you very much. And Nat Sperling, thank you from Toya. And we will be in touch again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of the Firm Ethics Podcast. For more information, articles, and feedback, feel free to contact us through our website, www.firmethics.com. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Firm Ethics Podcast with Evan Rudavsky.